We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to professionals within the built environment who work to inform people in government and the public that architecture across many spectrums can benefit the community. Our guests in this episode are two of the busiest staff members at the Australian Institute of Architects, Leanne Hardwick and Tim Leslie. Leanne is the General Manager of Policy, Advocacy and Education at the Institute, who works at a national level. And Tim is a registered architect who works at the state level as the Victorian State Manager of the Institute. Together, they share the important work the Institute does to place greater importance on the climate emergency and the representation of Indigenous architects, the production of guidelines and research that all architects benefit from, and the advocacy of architects to local, state and federal government. Let's jump in. All right. Thank you so much, Leanne and Tim, for joining me on the Hearing Architecture podcast today. How are you going? Very well, thank you. Great, thanks. Great. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be talking about architects in politics and advocacy, and you are both at the forefront of the work that the Institute does in this area. So first, I'd love you to both describe the work that you do in these areas, and then we can sort of jump into to the work that you do on a day-to-day basis. So Leanne, do you want to start us off with, with the work that, uh, that you do for the Institute in advocacy and politics? Sure. So um, I guess to start off with, the Institute as a professional association, one of its key roles is to actually try and influence government and influence industry around sort of different programs and policies. There's so many ways that we do that. But one of the key things to understand is we do it differently at a state and territory level than we do at a national level. So there's at a national level, we focus on national issues, which are divided by the constitution into state and territory and national issues. But we also have issues that are common right across all the states and territories. So we try and develop up things that are useful for state and territories, parts of our association, our chapters, and our other specialist committees to use in any kind of work that they're doing. Right. And Tim, I guess you're leading the charge in Victoria on a state level. So do you want to tell us about a little bit of that, the work that you're doing in Victoria? Yeah, thanks, Daniel. I mean, it's a range of different things being the state manager, but in terms of the scope of work, one of the key things is really that stakeholder engagement piece. So what you really want is a relationship with a range of different people within, I guess, government, also with clients and so on, to understand what's happening in in any particular state. So each state or territory will be doing this uh, because of how policy is developed. And so that then impacts our members and indeed community directly. So we tailor what we're doing in direct relationship with National. So there's, uh, I'm on the, phone call, uh, on the phone with Leanne probably every second day, <laughs> if not more, and just um, bouncing ideas about what's happening in the state, how does that tie back to a national agenda, and getting guidance about realigning positions and so on. 
Uh, because right. basically a lot of the things that the Institute does are, are pretty core principles that have been happening decade after decade about defending the importance of really good design and good design process and what architects do. And it's a it's a never-ending battle to, to keep, I guess, that clarity of what we contribute to society and why it matters. And obviously you have changes within government circles or any organisation, you need to, need to re reposition constantly. And there's also, as you know, with uh, different settings, always different things that we need to lobby for or position for. So uh, there's never a dull moment really in terms of that, the role. Oh, it's fantastic. And I mean, it for any architect looking at the Institute from the outside, it is such a big, complex beast. So it's really important that we understand the difference between what national does and what state does. So Leanne, did you want to speak to what national actually does versus what state does? So at a national level, we look at things like the federal election and federal budget, uh, actions around climate change, but then they will actually be done at a state level as well. There'll be things around national building regulation that we look at. We look at procurement issues right across the country, but also procurement with government and how we can influence that. We look at liability issues, contract clauses, and dealings with First Nations, affordable housing, all of those types of activities, all of those types of topics we look at. And I think yeah. at a state level, there's a lot of them that are, are around the planning system and around local heritage issues. Protecting local heritage is another issue that we deal with, and national heritage right. as well. So with those planning issues that the state government does, does that mean that the states then kind of interact with state governments directly? Is that how that works? Uh, yeah, it is. So basically each state has different regulations, like apartment guidelines is a key one, for instance. They're just slightly different settings and governments look at one another's guidelines or policies settings, but they can be quite different. So the idea is that the Institute uses its membership to basically get intel about what's happening with current regulations and, and policies. So how are they impacting design outcomes? Are they the right settings? Because often things are well-intentioned but have unintended consequences. So it's just trying to follow that through and then talk with government about why it could be an implication or actually stopping them meeting some of their key agendas, like climate change being a key one, for instance. There's some quite tricky settings around that about what's appropriate and how you increase density and all those other things, whilst what government wants is also looking after the community and what they think is appropriate. Right. Once people start to actually come on board with the Institute, not just as, uh, as a paying member, but as a committee member, you start to see that the Institute is made up of so many committees and specialist committees. How do the committees actually contribute to the Institute? What, what, what are they giving to the Institute and the community? Well, we have national committees and state committees. This is just another level of complexity. And each state will have different types of committees to every other state. But there are some common areas. So, for instance, we have a national practice committee and I use them predominantly in the policy sense to get feedback about what members are feeling in areas like building regulation. And then I've got the Climate Action and Sustainability Task Force at a national level and I go to them about climate action issues, energy efficiency, things to do with the building code in terms of energy efficiency. We've got the National Education Committee and that looks at things all around education and particularly there we were looking at accreditation standards for the universities. So we use their expertise in that way and they're represented by all the states and territories as well. 
Um, we've got the First Nations Advisory Working Group, uh, which is not representative of every state and territory, but but is bringing together experts in the field. So when we want to talk about Indigenous housing issues, for instance, we would use them as the experts. We're also utilising them to do a lot of stuff to get our own house in order in terms of all of our protocols. So that they're, they're an invaluable part of the, the equation in terms of our committee structure. And then, of course, we have National Council and the board who then sign off on sort of the big policy approaches like around the federal election or the federal budget, for instance. There's so many ways that members can input into this place and we like to be as widely representative as possible. So it's not just little groups who have influence. We make sure that we get as much member input as we possibly can. Fantastic. So does that mean that these committees then, so let's say the education committee, does a member of the education committee then go to, say, their state or federal education minister or is that something that someone from the Institute then does after the committee's gathered information? Yeah, the Institute usually does that. We have a spokesperson's policy so that it's usually at a national level, it's the CEO and the national president who are usually the key spokespersons. Unless there's a particular issue, like for instance in bushfires, we had a particular member who was who gave evidence at the Royal Commission because you know he, he was just the expert in the field. Then um, sort of at a state level, it's usually the chapter president and, you know, backed up by the, the chapter executive director. But it can be other members if they're delegated by the chapter president to do so. Yeah. So I think there's a good example of that at the moment. In Victoria, there's going to be a, there's a parliamentary inquiry into department design standards. And so both the president and the state manager are going to, well, I'm going to that. But what we've done is that we wanted to bring in two experts in terms of apartment design. So current thinking, people that we know have done a lot of research in this area, so we're bringing them on board as well. So they'll supplement presentation. So sometimes you, you tailor it when you really want quite targeted and in-depth data. So we'll talk about that beforehand, get alignment that this is representative of the members overall. So Because the other thing is that being a membership organisation, there's a raft of different settings between our members about what they might want out of a particular scenario. So what you're trying to do is do what benefits the majority of members, what's the best outcome overall. And so the other aspect of our cohort, our membership, is uh, apart from having specialisations of committees, in Victoria and I think perhaps in some of the other states, we've also got forums. So we've got what's called small practice forum, medium practice forum and large practice forum. And in Victoria, we often go to those forums because they're a cross-section of all of the membership, really. And each part of the membership has different, I guess, stresses. So a small practice will have different things that are really of importance to them versus a medium or large practice. And then also they'll do different types of buildings often. So there'll be a spectrum of different types of work. So there's different ways of targeting the membership and getting basically their IP. What you want is this intelligence. So bringing your membership through getting core information and then redistributing that back in an aligned national piece. So that's why we go back to national, make sure that's um, meeting those key pillars and getting approval, and then we proceed. But what you'll often have with your membership group that's involved in the chapter heavily is that they wear multiple hats, which is, again, a really critical component of, um, of architects. So they'll be perhaps a director of a company. They might do you know, a range of events as well, like speaking events and other things for design, but then they might also sit on a board. 
or they might sit on a, on a standards board, for instance, or a building regulator. And that's really critical because then you actually get this, these cross threads coming back and then you can repackage up information that's happening across the industry. So you'll often find the members that are active at any particular time are active across a range of different sectors. Well, that's such a wonderful thing about the Institute is it's a wonderful melting pot of experience and ideas all at once. And there's definitely a big push at the moment towards having better sustainability outcomes. And it seems like the Institute is doing a lot to try to, to make the education of architects higher in terms of building performance. How is the Institute engaging with climate change and sustainability at the moment in the built environment? Oh, we're doing so many different things. At the chapter level, there's sustainability committees who are doing a lot of local interaction with other industry groups, with other, you know, like, for instance, Ayla and PIA. At a national level, we work with uh, the Green Building Council, the Australian Construction Industry Forum, and the ASBEC, which is, uh, I can never remember this acronym, Australian Sustainable Built Environment Council. So I think that's it. But in terms of what the Institute's doing itself, one of the big things that we did under the leadership of Helen Lockhead was to convene the Climate Action and Sustainability Task Force. And she's still the chair of that, which is great. And so uh, we had to work out what, like, what kind of work program we might like to have and what is achievable and what isn't. So the very first thing, we sent out an EOI to get members. We actually got inundated. There were 60 applications to be part of the task force, which is the biggest I think we've ever had. So you can see that the interest is really high Mm. and such high calibre that it was really hard to choose, but we had to get down to about something manageable around eight or nine people. So we've managed to pull them together. And I guess one of the, we decided there were really four streams of work. So one was getting our own house in order, making sure that the institute is carbon neutral. And that's, you know, that's been looking at things like our travel, waste, you know, how we use our building energy and then offsetting a lot of stuff. We've still got a lot of work to do to, to make it more sustainable without using so many offsets, but we're getting there. The next one was sort of working out what kind of tools that members need to actually get themselves ready to be able to design for net zero. And, and that, when we're talking about there, we're talking the first stage is sort of about the operations and the next stage is about embodied carbon. So there'll be sort of like a two-stage set of tools, you know, measurement tools. And I think there it's about us providing CPD. It's about us providing linkages to uh, sort of resources that, that members can use to get themselves ready. And one of the key things that we did in this area was actually influenced the latest competency standards for architecture schools so that there's a whole range of sustainability things in there now so that we know that the, the cohort that comes out after that's implemented will be able to design a carbon zero building. So that, that was a major achievement. And we were also developing up policy and advocacy positions around climate change, which we go to government with and try to influence their policy decisions it's been a little bit difficult in this particular climate, but I'm, you never know. We'll get, we'll get there. Absolutely. Well, I guess that's it's such a huge issue that the schools are doing what they can and they're upskilling. Practices are able to upskill with how important it is across the entire architectural culture and then also the institute actually doing right in its own house to lead by example is a really important thing. And also with regards to sustainability within the Institute, what's happening in terms of the awards program with the new buildings that are being built? Is this is it becoming 
you know, more standard for buildings to be a sustainable building? Well, that's a really interesting question, um, Daniel, because New South Wales is running a pilot this year and it's a fantastic initiative, which is uh, requesting that all entrants in New South Wales awards process list their basically sustainability criteria. So there's a range of questions that um, they're asked to document. And so what this is great is it's a, a pilot which we, uh, we hope will go national, like uh, be endorsed, and then what this will do is actually say that, you know, good design really needs to have the key criteria of sustainability embedded in it, and then you go for design excellence. That's that's the bit extra over. But if we're going to meet the 2030 targets, we need to be changing our built environment now, and it needs to be across the board, and all of our projects that win awards should really have core sustainability at their heart and that should just be part and parcel of good design so really interesting watch this space i'd say but yeah a, a wonderful initiative new south wales yeah and i think that's fantastic for the public to know as well that if they're seeing a building which is in the future won an, won an award at the institute awards then it's not only just a beautiful building to look at it's also a high performing beautiful building to look at absolutely the Institute's also been doing fantastic work uh, engaging with First Nations people. And did that start with changing the constitution of the Institute? We did. We actually put in a statement of recognition in the constitution. So that was the very first step. And we've moved on from there. And we were actually working on a whole range of programs to change our own protocols internally to provide information and proper CPD about actually designing for country. And we're going to be rolling out some training for staff around cultural competency and seeing how that goes and then maybe making that wider and more open to for um, our members as well in the future. So that's just the start of the program and we're just in the process, I think, starting the first phase is to review what we've got, work out what's not very good and how to improve it. We're also working on a thing called a design excellence policy and that is actually melds the two areas, the First Nations and sustainability together. So it's a tool that we've pinched a few of the ideas from the Americans about and we want to broaden it out and make it more Australian. And it's actually looking at, you know, all the things that you need to consider to make sure that your design is sustainable. I know that's a mm. big word. and But also having the First Nations stuff woven through it as well. Mm. And then from there, we can then work out what we need to support members to actually, you know, use that as a useful framework. Yeah, and it seems like a really important part of that as well is making sure that the First Nations Advisory Group have a seat at the table as well in the Institute, which is such a big organisation. Yeah. How, how has that been handled? So they started off as an advisory working group and we we're just about to put some papers up to the board to make them a committee of the board rather than a committee of National Council so that mm. they can be as part of the overall decision-making process right at the top. Fantastic. And what's the Institute doing in terms of employing First Nations people to make sure that their voice is heard throughout the whole organisation? It's a tricky one, that, because we're very small staff numbers. Mm. Uh, we do have a target to try and represent make sure that our institute is represented in a percentage way in terms of how many Aboriginal architects there are and how many Aboriginal people there are, you know, in the country. Unfortunately, there's very few Aboriginal architects. So mm -hmm. there's a very small pool of experts to call on. So mm -hmm. that's a challenge in and of itself. Yeah. And 
I guess this is one of the issues that the Institute's trying to tackle that's, you know, a cultural thing and it's something where we're trying to represent as many people in the community that we have so that it's a, a good reflection of, of who makes up the community. And the Institute also does the drier work with revolving around contracts as well. And Tim, it seems like you're, you're the one leading, leading the charge in Victoria around procurement and novation, which I think some people think, oh, we're talking about contracts. Oh, gosh, I wish I didn't have to put this time in. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in the Code of Novation? Yeah, so the Code of Novation is a, a really important piece of work, actually. So procurement is fundamental in terms of success of a project and also risks to industry and the community and so on. And uh, what's happened over a number of years is the modification of how buildings are procured by and large. And so design and construct with novation is probably the most common method of procuring really commercial and residential buildings. So the most numerous of building types in terms of scale and so forth. And what we've been finding obviously with some of the building failures documented globally is that there's a range of embedded issues or failings in terms of that process. So through the large practice forum, there was a discussion amongst the different companies about what they were seeing in the industry. And it became quite clear that there were some pretty major concerns. And so that's fine to hear that initially from members. It's current going through that uh, procurement's terrible and design and construct and we're having troubles with head contractors, blah, blah, blah. But what we wanted to find out is you actually need to find out actually hardcore data. It's not enough just to have these motherhood statements and so on. So from that point, what we did was we spoke to National again and said, look, we're hearing this is a, a real issue. There's obviously the fires that had happened. There was the building confidence report. And reading through those reports, we didn't think that they had really quite captured the amount of more well, focus that we saw or the issues that we saw weren't being played out clearly enough. And we saw a great opportunity to try to get a position of the architect as the lead consultant and its traditional role um, had been eroded. So we just wanted to test the, the industry to find out if that was actually the case. So what we did was we developed a, a, a national survey and had incredible uptake. So we went out and we asked quite a ridiculous number of questions. But the, the reason behind that was that to get someone to do a survey, again, you want to have quite detailed information. And we asked them to look into three projects. So there were some general questions about how they were finding projects with novation and how many of their projects were, were novated. And then following that through, and then we asked them to do three basically case studies as well. So projects we'd been finished in the last five years and give comments back on that. And so that gave us a really interesting overview of the industry, the construction industry, from an architect's perspective. So that was a really important thing. It was only through, this is very much an architect's view of what was going on. So from that, we got this amazing pool of data, which was quite shocking in a range of ways in terms of what was going on. So when you think about innovation or any, any type of building, so any procurement, it's really this idea of, You've got time, cost, and quality. That's always what you're trading on in terms of the balance of getting the outcome. So with novation, what you really end up trading on to a large degree is, is quality because you've locked in um, time and you've locked in the cost. And so the bit that's the variable is, is the quality component. So there's a lot of substitutions, a lot of changes, and so on. So what we wanted to do was to find out where the stresses were happening across the industry 
And so we found a number of things. So architect is the lead consultant, often wasn't at key project meetings anymore. Might just be the client with the head contractor or builder with the project manager, but not necessarily the project, uh, the lead consultant. So that's obviously a, a, a failing. Often they didn't have access to a cost plan. So, you know, the idea of actually being able to lead in terms of cost was not possible because there was no access to that cost plan. And so the, these traditionally, these wouldn't happen 10, 15 years ago. These were just crept in and substitutions as we know. So huge amounts of change. And then a lack of alignment of scope. You know, your structural engineer might be doing 50% of a full scope, a mechanical engineer 30%, but the architect a full scope. But then you can't coordinate between all the consultants. So therefore, errors can come through. It makes it very difficult for the contractor to price and their subcontractors to price. So it was just fleshing out all these things. So mm. once we found out that, what we ended up doing was we wanted to put an industry lens over it. So we then went out and we had a, a range of, I guess what we're calling the code, and they were just a set of behaviors, which really could apply to any procurement model, but was focused on innovation, really. And we went to the industry. So we went to a range of contractors. We went to project managers, to construction lawyers, to quantity surveyors, and ran through basically our, our findings and what our recommendations were to improve a DNC innovated um, project. And so that then got modified over a period of probably one and a half years. It's like these things take an <laughs> insane amount of time. And so it's, it's really just um, about to be launched finally, which is terrific. But it's, it's, a, it's a great document. And what's interesting about it is that it's such a huge amount of work from so many people, and most of them will be very obvious to people. Like, so of course you'd do that. Of course you'd do that. But uh, in actual fact, this is where obviously failures happen, is that there's nothing to refer to. What it allows is members and indeed clients to actually have something to look at and go, well, these are really good principles about how to have a better procurement process. And if you do these things in terms of relationship building, because it's all about trust and relationships in terms of delivering buildings, if you do these things, you get much, you're much more likely to get a better outcome for everyone involved in the process. So that's it's been a great body of work, very dry, but I can't believe I've got excited about it. But <laughs> it continues to this day. Yeah, no, it was so fantastic that you just took us through all of the, like the, the depth and breadth of the process in do, making a guideline properly and appropriately. Because when you're talking about something like Novation, there needs to be a lot of research and data gathering and then also the review, the review process, and and continuing that conversation. There's such an important feedback loop that needs to happen, so that then when it does go out to the public, you can make sure that you've done all of those steps to make sure that a lot of people who are doing all of this really important work in that area have had a chance to to contribute something to this guideline and help make it stronger for the public. So it's. It might sound laborious to some people when they're saying, come on, Institute, just pr produce this thing in six months or something like that. Yeah. But it just can't happen that way, can it? No, and it's been three years. So it's longer. It was probably a year longer than I anticipated, I'd say. But having said that, it's not that you wait three years. This is the other thing that's really important about all of the work the Institute does in this type of advocacy role is you start on the path and you along this research piece that you're doing to build up a case, you're actually engaging with all of your stakeholders anyway. So the, fun, the people who are going to end up with the document, they're already engaged on the way. So they end up also seeing how it gets modified. 
but it also changes their perception about what's happening in the industry. And so whilst it's taken us three years to deliver this, what we've found over those three years is that the whole position in the industry about innovation, we were a really early leader on this, if not the start of that whole process, has, has caught up with us. So people mm. are all agreeing about, yeah, we should have consistency, we should reduce substitutions. You know, and this has gone through because there's been big government reviews both in New South Wales and Victoria about construction. And so we're waiting for the framework for reform to come out, but we've been able to engage with a government group who are there to change policy, and we could discuss a range of our findings from our survey before we formally published anything. So they're really, really incredibly important documents, and it's Mm. not that they're only worth their weight at the end. It's actually they're almost worth more through the process of doing them, uh, which I found really fascinating actually as an outcome. Absolutely. And I think that's really important that when you then have to take that document to government and they can ask you any question about how successful this document can be, going through that process opens you up to hearing a lot of those questions beforehand so that then you can make sure that you've had those, that you have those answers when you engage with government. And I guess the Institute is also engaging with local governments who sort of one of the first first people that architects have to engage with when you think you've got some drawings that can be built. What is the Institute doing with the engagement with these local governments? The, the issues you have with local government, obviously, is that they're stretched thin. And some councils, for instance, don't deliver many buildings. You know, it might be one building every five years or every 10 or 15 years. So their knowledge of procurement and good procurement processes can be quite limited, and they might just go back to the last thing they've done before. And the key thing with that is also about... I guess, a range of settings around uh, how you get good design into those processes. So trying to raise awareness. So we work, obviously, with groups like the Office of the Victorian Government Architect and other states do the same with their, their government architect to try to engage with different local governments and talk about the role of good design. And one of the key things with that is that what we're hoping to do is have more design review panels rolled out. And the reason they're of benefit and a design review panel would have a you know a range of different experts. So you'd you know have hopefully a number of architects, but you'd have a landscape architect, an urban designer, and so on, and maybe a, a member of the public, and so on. So it's a it's a broad setting in terms of review. But what it does is it means that you can bring together an expert group to provide an overview of a design and actually inform a council whether it's actually appropriate. Because design by its very nature is change, and change is often not uh, looked upon favourably by people. Like it, it changes their cityscape or townscape or wherever it might be. So there's always hesitancy to any change, and should we be doing this? And so the legitimacy of something is um, difficult to determine. And often you're increasing scale and density, and with climate agendas as well, you'd be having different types of maybe sun shading and solar arrays, a range of other things that would be on the building that perhaps weren't there in the neighbourhood character of an existing area. So there's a range of things that you're trying to address to, for the benefit of future society. And so this group can give the council that expertise, and it means that the council doesn't need to have that expertise embedded in it, which is a, a, a big cost as well for them to keep that type of expertise in. So we're exploring things like that and talking about why that's of benefit. The other thing is that in terms of planning processes across the country, you 
there's this huge desire to speed them up always to like, you know, how you get through so that there's less objections and so on. The, the issue you face with architects is that architects normally work in the area of construction which is normally the most complicated. So in terms of the distribution or the bell curve, most of those projects might be able to go, go through and meet um, key criteria that the local government set up. But often the sites that architects are doing are highly complex. They like, might be very small sites or heritage overlays or a range of different conflicting and quite difficult problems to be solved. And so they don't fit always the the tick the box approach. And it's not saying that tick the box approach is wrong. It's just saying that what we need is another stream of assessment of design that allows for innovation and so on. Mm -hmm. So this is where you get into this very difficult situation because you don't want it to be taken advantage of, but you want to be able to have the ability to innovate and solve complex problems that the planning scheme hasn't seen or doesn't recognize right now. So again, we're just trying to talk to a range of different people about these settings and about neighbourhood character. And, you know, often these set, um, neighbourhood character settings that were set 30 or 40 years ago hmm. and may not be relevant anymore and need to be redone to be more embracive of where society is. And so, you know, it's just having discussions, building up a level of trust and bringing ex experts in from heritage to urban design to whatever to help assist this transformation of really the built environment. Yeah, hmm. it's an interesting relationship, I guess, between architects and, and local councils. But then there are some projects that are yeah, pushing the boundaries a little bit too hard. I remember at a young planners luncheon that I was at, I said, you know, it's great for all the architects and planners to talk to each other because we're all on the same side. And then a planner just yelled out, no, we're not. So <laughs> it's really important that we can all talk to each other. And I think we are on the same side in, in the sense that we all want really great buildings built for the community. So yeah, trying to figure out how we can better fit into whether it's tick box or design review panel based, just delivering great outcomes is really all of our, all of our main goal. And do you think some planning policies like SEP 65 in Sydney have helped in that regard where making some of the goals that architects have to make quite hard in terms of sustainable building performance has actually made things better and made architects and planners happy? I think it has actually. I think it was a step in the right direction and it was a really good stepping stone for later reform. So because it, it, it only went a certain way in terms of uh, mandating that anything over three storeys had to be designed an architect, but that was at the early stages of the design. Now we've moved, we've been able to leverage on that, bringing in the Design and Building Practitioners Act and regulations, which is all about, all brought in because of all the defects in a lot of these large structures that have been coming to the fore over the last few years. And we've been able to say, right, so only architects who have got this level of experience and, and knowledge and, you know, at AQF9 level can actually design and sign off on all of the designs all the way through the process on everything over three storeys. Everything else below that can be done by a building designer, but architects are the only ones that can do the, the majority of the work. So that was a major step forward from SEP 65. And I think that's, you know, that's in New South Wales, that's been fantastic. Trying to get that adopted in other states is quite tricky because as you, everyone knows, no state wants to do exactly the same thing as any other state. They're all different. 
and they all like to do things their own way, which makes it quite tricky if you're trying to have a national position on anything. Yeah, I reckon. I mean, it's really good that at least there's there's communication happening within the institute, I guess, between what's happening in in each uh, in each state, so that there is that sort of feedback loop on on what's working and what's not. I think that's also one of the strengths in the institute. It starts it's starting to also look into research that's being done in house to inform the institute and its members for ways that we can improve what's happening either with guidelines, the building code, different things like that. Can you let us know or let our listeners know what the Institute is doing in terms of the in-house research that the Institute's taking on? Well, we do a lot of member surveys around a variety of topics. Just to get a feel of what's happening in the industry, we also do industry-wide surveys with other groups so that we can get information and data in because you can't make good policy without good information. And, and you need both sides of the argument, if you like, about, you know, what one profession sees one way and what one profession sees another. But what we do is find a confluence, particularly with the consultants, you know, engineers, architects, all, you know, coming across the same sorts of issues. So being involved with big research projects with universities is one thing that we do. And we try and support them and be a partner in that research. But undertaking our own research of our members is um, a key aspect of what we're trying to do. Um, at the moment, we've got one out on insurance and liability. We've actually just closed one off about election priorities for our members coming up to the federal election so that all members have had an opportunity to input into some of the views they see as the most important ones. So, yeah, we're, go- we're going to be continuing to do that. A major research project we did a couple of years ago resulted in some guidelines for EOIs and RFTs, and we we have used that to go out to local government, state government, universities to sort of say, if you want to procure architectural services, these guidelines and templates will provide you with the best outcome for you and for the architect so you're not wasting time. And I think it's important to note that everything that we do in the policy space and anything we provide as a tool has to be delivered through the lens of what's good for the community and what's good for the other party. It's not just about what's good for architects. Mm, and I think that's that's really important to show that, you know, we, we are a good neighbour and we want to make sure that we're delivering guidelines that take care of the different people that we have to work with throughout our projects. So I think that's really, really great that we have that as a resource. And more recently, has there been any research done in wellness or, you know, mental health in, in the actual architecture profession? There is. There's a research project being done by Monash University around the linkage between work practices and the wellness of the profession. And and the wellness project is all about looking at, they did a survey of around 2,000 people, which is a huge, and covered off different career levels of different individuals within the, within the architecture profession and have come with some preliminary research results around the impact of what is happening in the workplace in terms of work hours, undercutting of prices, uh, you know, all those kind of pressures that you have in an architectural office and what impact that has actually on the well-being and mental wellness of practitioners. And I can't wait to mm. see the end product. I think they've got a lot more in-depth work to do, but it, it looks like there's a high correlation between poor wellness if I can use the, that's not the best terminology, and workplace practices. Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of inputs into that particular issue beyond 
some of the simple things like you know lack of sleep or what have you that will that will impact individuals on on many different levels. So it'll be really fantastic to see what comes out of that research for sure, so that we can help make the profession a really healthy place for everyone's mental health. And then I guess there's a lot of people when I've spoken to people out in the public and the way that they perceive architecture is there's a a greater appreciation, I guess, of older buildings and people feel a greater connection to some of the heritage buildings that that are in their community and on their street. There's definitely some buildings where people have had to fight tooth and nail to try to save some of these older older buildings or even some newer buildings that uh, we believe are significant. What is the Institute doing in that regard? Is there quite a tight uh, relationship between the Institute and Heritage Council? They're not at all connected, so we don't have a direct line of conversation. We're not represented on, on any of the Heritage Council. There are members, there are architects who are on there, but they are not representatives of the Institute. So when it comes to buildings of architectural significance, what does the uh, Institute do in terms of engaging with that sort of process? I know that Tim, you were working on Shell House recently. What has the Institute done in, with regards to that building? Well, that's a very unique project. So normally we're very hesitant to have a position about really a range of change in the, in the built environment. Like we try to keep our powder dry and it's really on, on, only on really, really significant projects that we'll actually put forward a, a proposition. So with that particular building, which is of incredible significance, so it's not, you know, the architect's passed away. It's Harry Seidler. He's, you know, world-renowned, not just nationally recognised. Well, won the gold medal. And this is one of his buildings, part of five across really Australia in the, in the mid-80s, commercial towers, which are really at the height of his, I guess, design prowess. And they all have a really interesting language between them. So there's no doubt of the significance of this particular building. And it's got a heritage overlay on it. So the reason that we put forward an, really a, an objection against it is we uh, met as a, a chapter, because we normally don't object about anything. We went through a process of voting first to make sure that we thought this was alignment because it's nothing about the new development about being put on. It's just that we don't believe there should be a development on this particular site. So it's a very particular response. We then took that to national when it was approved to make sure that that was actually something that we would follow through on. Um, We had approval because, again, we only do this on very select sites and then, yeah, basically put forward a proposition. Now, the reason for that is this building, you know, it's on the corner of the Hoddle Grid in in, in Melbourne. The hotel grid has obviously got very limited land supply, so the ability to build new towers is is very difficult. So you can understand why there's a desire to put something on this particular site. It's a plaza at the rear. But the, the issue with it is that this building, which is a modernist building, is one of really only a handful in, in Melbourne. There'd be ICI House, which is heritage listed, which is a modernist building with a green landscape. There's also 140 William, which was by Yunkin Freeman, which is again a plaza with a very much an American style um, skyscraper with an exoskeleton of steel. But this one is very much a Seidler classic. And the three parts of it are critical. So he has a geometric shape, and then he has a civic component. So that dresses the corner of the, the hodl grid. And that's the building comes straight to ground. So it's quite austere on that side. But then it's, there's, what he has is also a public plaza. So all of these buildings, I was talking about these five buildings across in the 80s, they all have this public plaza. And then 
What happens in the public plaza is it's a contoured plaza, so it steps down, has a podium, and has landscape, and has a range of different, basically, I guess, facilities that um, serve the building, like a theatre and so on. And so, and it's got this direct connection to Sky. So Seidler could have chosen to develop the whole site. Uh, he very consciously didn't and set it back. And so the proposal is to put a tower on, the, on this public plaza. And our concern is that you actually really destroy the reading of the whole Seidler motif by doing that. Sure, the tower's still there, and people could argue that it's just taking up space and doing some incursion on the podium. But in actual fact, if you look at these buildings as, as really significant pieces of art, like, I mean, they are master, masterpieces in terms of the Australian context, you just wouldn't do this. So that, that's the reason why we've put in a rejection. Right. Well, because it's a site of so much significance in an area with so little land, I can understand that this, this sort of issue would require a very high level of diplomacy to negotiate talking about the benefits of this, this type of project and when not to do architecture. That's exactly right. I mean, this is not something you would normally, this is not a setting that the Institute would normally take. You know, the proposal being put forward is, you know, it's a great design, a great tower. And in terms of, so this, <laughs> this is the tension with architecture and heritage and cities and, you know, the idea of having, you know, a highly sustainable new tower and commercial development, they're all great so, and, in, and needed. So we're going to continue to grow. However, it's just trying to make sure that we keep on to key aspects of our urban fabric that mm. really are significant. So there's others that are seriously not at this, at this level, and, and you would say, yes, you should have the opportunity to redevelop that site. So it is a very complex and nuanced space, and hence we've gone about it in a very, we hope, a delicate way. And it'll be interesting to see, see what transpires. The, the minister's called it in, so it could go anyway. It's up to the, the minister's determination about what they see as being appropriate for Victoria at this particular time. Hmm. And I guess, like you were saying at the beginning, this is kind of a unique situation where the Institute doesn't always just jump in and try to save every single building that's out there. This is something where usually Heritage Council have a much bigger say and it's up to the individuals to, to object or to put an argument forward to, to preserve different buildings. So, yes, it'll be really interesting to see what the minister does with, with um, Shell House for sure. So I guess this sort of brings us back to the lobbying side of the Institute and there's got to be very different aspects to lobbying within the Institute from a national level, a federal level, down to the state level. So, um, Leanne, do you want to tell us a little bit about what, uh, in more detail, what the Institute does on a, on a lobbying level or maybe a, a coordination level with groups such as the National Construction Code and others so that we know what the Institute is actually delivering when it comes to, to that engagement with, with federal government? So in those instances, like with the National Construction Code, it's reviewed every three years by the Australian Building Codes Board. The Australian Building Codes Board has a number of technical committees, as does Standards Australia, and we have representatives on those committees. So we have a representative on the Building Codes Committee of the Australian Building Codes Board, lots of acronyms there which I've tried to avoid. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's one way we input, and that person actually has a network of people within the Institute that he, and it is a he in this instance, um, actually goes out and talks to whenever there's an issue that comes up that he needs to address. There's also a public consultation phase 
and uh, we definitely input into all of the changes through that public consultation phase. We're also part of an industry stakeholder group, so we get to have a, a different different ways of, of inputting. And one of the when it comes to one of those really big changes, like the 2022 energy efficiency provisions, for instance. We went out to all of our chapters, all of the sustainability committees, and asked them to put in their views about the questions that were being asked and about, you know, the, the regulatory impact statement that had been put out so that we could put a, a very cohesive view back to uh, the federal government. Whereas in other instances, you know, it might be that we have a representative on a particular committee and they might be bound by confidentiality requirements and so they can't report back what they've been discussing but they actually have a big responsibility to actually represent the profession as best they can. Mm. So, you know, there's, there's all different ways that we lobby and we write submissions on a variety of matters to, you know, as in a reactive way. We proactively put forward policy statements and ask for programs to be changed. Mm. But it is all about picking the right moment to do things. And, you know, as an institute, we're not all powerful, you know, because we demand something, it doesn't mean it happens. It really is all about using your skills to influence people and not just government but also other industry players to sort of put, put forward the view that this will be good for you, this will be good for the community, this is why we need to do this. Mm. And I think something like the, the change to the energy performance section of the building code, which I believe is being changed from a six-star minimum to a seven-star minimum, is that correct? We're hoping that that's what will end up in the final version, yes. Right. And I mean... Something like that, uh, it's definitely a win-win for, for everyone in that regard where, you know, the people who are building new homes are going to get these amazing, you know, high, higher performing homes than, than what we were getting, you know, only, only 15 years ago. So it's, or even, even less, it's, uh, it's going to be amazing to see, to see that happen. And Tim, on the, on the state government level, how, what's your role in terms of talking to state government and yeah, getting things like these design review panels approved. Well, I mean, governments want to consult. In fact, they've—I'm sure they've got a remit to do so across most of their, I guess, policy changes and so on. So, being the peak body, they—they they do want to engage with us, and so we get um, a huge amount of requests to attend all manner of different types of discussion groups and so on. And I guess part of the thing is just to have. A recognised profile, so it's them knowing who the key people are, and same with journalists and so on. So once they know different touch points within the organisation, they will reach out to us regularly and and want to discuss a range of topics that are facing the local or the state or territory, depending where you are, building environment concerns. And so, and the more that you enact in a positive way and provide information that they can take back and then incorporate, the more they'll then engage with you again. So. Uh, we've been very fortunate within the policy and advocacy team, more broadly, Leanne's team, that she's brought in a range of additional people. And that's so important because one of the interesting things about a membership organisation is that you can focus on things which are all about the members in terms of events and all these types of things and awards programs, which are also critical. But in actual fact, if you want to manifest change, and influence and actually make the opportunity for better outcomes. It's the advocacy side, which is the really critical component. And that's a, that's a long game. It's a relationship game. And it actually requires you pulling in your membership and allowing your members to actually also invest. And they volunteer their time. So this is the other thing is that we get members in 
and they volunteer their IP, which is incredible actually because they're also busy. And then we can then tailor that and then submit. So for me, the advocacy thing is such a critical component of the Institute. It's one of the things I've enjoyed the most in terms of my role as state manager, because prior to this, I was an, an architect and it, it's so, so important. So, but I found it really enjoyable and the government does want to engage with us, both predominantly state government, I would say. And then through that as well, there's a range of other players in that space so that we have a really great working relationship with the Office of the Victorian Government Architects, also with the National Trust, with the Planning Institute and the Institute of Landscape Architects. So this kind of network and then the key developers and so on, we can go and reach them. In terms of our membership group, we've got, you know, great reach to actually then find out what's really happening and uh, and influence. I think that's that's such a such a fantastic point to make is that as it, as great as it is to get the, the bit of a discount on Architecture Australia magazine and a few other benefits the real <laughs> the real benefit of paying the membership fees to the institute is there's this all this amazing work that's being done behind the facade of the buildings where the work is being done and you know it comes out in things like guidelines it comes out in things like updates to the building code and it's just yeah it's it's phenomenal to start talking to different people at the institute about this amazing work that's being done so Thank you so much, Leanne and Tim, for, for joining me today to talk us through all of this work that's going on in the engagement with government. It's, yeah, we can't wait to see what else the Institute delivers in this regard. So, yeah, thank you so much, and I hope you keep us informed with, with what the Institute is doing. You're welcome. Thanks so much, Daniel. It's been a delight. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guests in this episode, Leanne Hardwick and architect Tim Leslie from the Australian Institute of Architects. We're very grateful for your time and thankful for your advocacy for architecture on so many levels through the work you're doing at the Institute. The whole profession is better for it. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Cassie Award, Hilary Duff, Kimberly Huey and Max Legal-White. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.